Good morning. So great to see everyone here today. I'm thankful that you're here. I'm thankful that I'm here, uh, that we can all be here together. Uh, I want to say how much I appreciate Kurt standing in for me last Sunday morning and evening at the last minute and Ryan uh, taking the adult class and uh, they both did an outstanding job, I know, and really appreciate that. But today's such a special day, having us back together to get, uh, again here in the worship center and we're uh, so grateful that God has brought us through a lot of things and uh, brought us together today. It's also uh, good to uh, welcome our uh, uh, teenage group back from camp. And uh, Chris, I hope they had a good week. I haven't gotten to talk to him about it yet, but I hope they had a, had a great time this week. And also, uh, I hear a rumor about Vacation Bible School. That's tomorrow, right? Okay. <laughs> Some of the teachers look shocked. They were thinking it got canceled. <laughs> I saw that look of hope on your face. But, uh, tomorrow starts Vacation Bible School. Great, uh, great week, great time for the Glen Allen Church. And so uh, many, many blessings from the Lord. A lot of things to be thankful for. And one of those is being able to come together and to think about the cross of Jesus. When I was in graduate school, I have to say, um, got to, to read and learn a lot of really worthwhile things and also had to read a lot of dumb stuff. And, and one of the dumbest things that I ever had to read about was that the idea that Paul, because in his letters, does not say a lot about specific events in the life of Jesus, that he didn't know about them. Uh, the idea was that uh, some people say that Paul really knew very little about Jesus' actual life. No, that's one of the silliest things I ever heard in my life. Uh, the reason Paul doesn't mention a lot of specific events in the life of Jesus is because the people he was writing were already Christians. They knew the story. And so he didn't need to go back and tell them about Jesus' birth and about how he grew up and, you know, the Sermon on the Mount and all those things. And, and he didn't talk a lot about the event of the cross. He never describes the crucifixion, but he talks about the meaning of Jesus' death more than anybody else in the New Testament. He talks about the significance of Jesus' death, so much so that one writer called him the apostle of the crucified Lord. And especially what Paul focuses on is the necessity of the cross, why you and I had to have Jesus die for us, for our sins. And the text where he does that most memorably is Romans 3, 21 to 26, that you heard read just a few minutes ago. It's been described as the heart of the Roman letter and it's perhaps the most important paragraph ever written. So we're going to spend some time thinking about it today. Now, you'll notice that the word cross doesn't occur in that text. But it's clear that Paul's thinking about the cross because he talks about the blood uh, of Jesus. But to get to Romans 3, 21 to 26, I want us to back up to Romans 1, 16 and 17. That's where Paul states the theme of his letter. The theme of the letter is the gospel. He told the Romans, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The gospel, Paul says, is the power of God for salvation. It is the story of Jesus' death and resurrection for our sins that is the power of God for salvation. Why? Paul says because of this, in it 
the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, if we're going to understand the cross, and if we're going to understand what Paul is getting at here in Romans 3, we need to understand that phrase, righteousness of God. He uses it again in chapter 3 and verse 21. Notice that in chapter 3, verses 21 to 26, Paul uses the noun, the adjective, and the verb forms of the Greek word for righteousness seven times in six verses. You see, all those words, righteous, just, justifier, uh, made right, all come from the same Greek word. They all come from the same root word. And so in some ways they are, they are almost interchangeable, but not all the time uh, as, we, uh, as we will see. This term, the righteousness of God, is a legal term. It means simply this. It means, first of all, that God is right and you and I are not. It's as though we've been brought into court, into the judgment seat of God, which we will one day, won't we? into the judgment seat of God, and he is right. He is righteous. He is just. And we are not righteous. We are not righteous. And so we need to be made right with God. Now, the problem is, according to chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3 and verse 20, none of us is righteous. We're all under God's wrath. He is right. We're not. None of us is righteous, and so we find ourselves standing under the wrath of God. And so in chapter 1, verse 18, Paul begins an eloquent statement about the Gentile world of his day, how the Gentiles had rejected the knowledge of God and taken up the worship of idols instead. He said, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of men who by their wickedness suppress the truth. And that wickedness primarily, he says, is exchanging the truth about God for a lie. Then when he gets to chapter 2 and verse 1, he turns his attention to the Jews. Because although they had God's law and they had a long history with God, they weren't living up to that law. They never had. And so he says of them that you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. So he says the Gentiles were condemned because of their idolatry. He says the Jews were condemned because they hadn't kept their law. And that brings us up to chapter 3 and verse 21. Here's the problem. We are all guilty of sin. Now here's the thing. How can a righteous God ever forgive anybody? If we're not righteous, if we are not pure, If we are not holy, how then can a righteous God ever forgive anybody and still, still be righteous or still be just? Because, you know, it's no more just to acquit the guilty than it is to punish the innocent. Neither of those is just. And in order for God to be just, something has to happen here. Proverbs 17, verse 15 says, He who justifies the wicked... And he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. It's an abomination to the Lord, he says, to condemn the righteous, but also to justify the wicked. And you and I are sinful. What's Paul's answer? The answer is in the cross. The answer is the cross. 
Paul's talking about the cross because he says that God has put forward Jesus as propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Notice the words in verse 21, but now, but now. All throughout history, you have had people in the Gentile world practicing idolatry. You'd had the people of Israel who were not living up to their covenant, not keeping their law. And then Paul says, but now. But now, he says, the righteousness of God has been revealed apart from law. Those are words of hope and refreshment. Because all, after all those words about guilt and condemnation comes the message of the cross. God has accomplished the perfect blending of his justice and mercy. Did you notice that beautiful phrase in the song we sang a few minutes ago? O trysting place where heaven's love and heaven's justice meet. That's the cross. That's where God's justice and God's love come together because Jesus has borne the penalty for us, for our sins, and we are put right with God. We are justified. Now, Paul's language in this paragraph, Romans 3, 21 to 26, is pretty tightly woven. And if we're going to understand it, it's going to help if we can kind of unravel some of his key words and phrases. So let's do that for a few minutes. Let's think, let's think first of all, about this expression, apart from the law. But now the righteousness of God has been revealed apart from the law. What is Paul talking about? He's talking about the fact that the law had a problem. And the problem with the law was it never did save anybody. It couldn't. We misunderstand that sometimes. We think that the people of Israel were saved by the law and we're saved by the cross. Not true. Not true. They're saved by the cross as well, Hebrews 9 verse 15 says. They couldn't be saved by the law because in order to be saved by the law, you had to be able to keep the law and keep it perfectly because when you broke one commandment, then you became guilty. And so Paul says it's not possible, and the Bible says all the way through, not possible to be redeemed by the law. In chapter uh, 3, verses 9 and 10, Paul said, We have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. And then just 10 verses later, he said, For by works of the law, no human will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now, what does he mean by that? Through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law highlights our sin. The law points out how sinful we are. The law is like a medical diagnosis. If you go to the doctor and you're having some problem or some pain or whatever, and you get a diagnosis, that doesn't cure you at all, does it? That just tells you what the problem is. That's what the law does. The law shines the light of God's word on us and says, here's your problem. Here's where you're missing the boat. Here's where you're failing to be what God has called you to be. But it didn't do anything to fix it. It couldn't do anything to fix it except tell us to do better and try as we might. We could never be better enough to be right with God. It only highlights our sin. And so God created a way to be right with him that was not based on law. It was not based on our ability to keep that law. It was not based on our performance. That's why we call it gospel. Because after we've worn ourselves out trying to do 
all the right things. And when we, we've exhausted ourselves thinking that we've got to get everything just right, here comes the gospel that says, no, that's not how it works. It's apart from law. God has done with the law what weakened by the flesh could not do, Paul says in Romans 8. He sent his own son, the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin. So he says this salvation comes apart from the law, yet the law and the prophets, in other words, the whole Old Testament, bears witness to it. This isn't contrary to what God was doing in the beginning. It's just a new phase of it. The law and the prophets bear witness to what God was going to do in sending his son, uh, Jesus. That's why when Jesus died on the cross, he cried out, it is finished. What was finished? What was finished was the plan of God that had been in the works ever since Genesis 3. Ever since Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve first sinned, God already knew what he was going to do. And throughout history, he worked out that plan until the coming of his son, who died on the cross, that we might be redeemed. So that's the new way. Well, what is this new way, though, that's not about the law? How does that work? That brings us to the next phrase, through faith in Jesus Christ, verse 22. Through faith in Jesus Christ. You see, faith is how God's righteousness comes to us. That's what we need is his righteousness. And it comes to us through faith. We said that the righteousness of God means that God is right. But that phrase, righteousness of God, can be used in more than one way. And it is here because clearly uh, in verse 22, it's not about the justice of God. In verse 22, he's talking about a righteousness God gives to us. A righteousness God gives to us. That's why the New International Version translates it a righteousness from God. A righteousness from God. Now, don't miss this truth. Because if we never grasp this, then we never grasp the gospel. Don't miss this truth. If we are ever to be put right with God, it has to be by faith in Jesus and what he did on that cross. And by receiving the righteousness that is God's gift to us. He's going to have to give us righteousness. We sang in that song a few minutes ago, the righteous shall see his holy face. And here's Paul saying, none is righteous. How does that work? Because God gives us his righteousness through faith in Jesus. You know, there's only two things you can do, uh, or two possibilities for salvation. One is that we are either saved by our own righteousness or we're saved by God's. I was having a conversation with a man one day, and he was having a hard time grasping that. And he, and he kept saying, but, but it, it, there's, you can't believe that God gives us his righteousness. And I said, well, do you believe you can be saved by yours? And he didn't want to answer that. And I said, when you stand before God, are you going to stand before God and say, God, here's my righteousness. I expect you to save me on the basis of my righteousness. And he didn't want to answer it. There's only two possibilities. It's either our righteousness or God's righteousness. And some people say it is by our righteousness that we have to become righteous enough, whatever that means. That we have to become righteous enough for God to forgive us. But scripture says otherwise. I love that powerful image that's found in Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 6 
we have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about a spiritual leper. We've all become as one who's unclean. Remember what the law of Moses said, that if you were a leper you, and you were around other people and you were going into town or into the marketplace or wherever, you had to put your hand over your mouth and cry, unclean, unclean. And anything that you touched became unclean. You polluted it. Your clothing was unclean. Any body you touched became unclean. And here's Isaiah saying that all, we have become like one who is unclean. We have all become spiritual lepers. And all of our, not our sins are like a polluted garment, but our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. At our very best, at our very best, we are unclean and unable to save ourselves. What do we do? Isaiah 61 and verse 10. There's a lot of gospel in the book of Isaiah, by the way. Isaiah 61 and verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Don't you love that image? Here comes this spiritual leper hobbling along and clean, unclean, and he's very best he can do is like a polluted garment, and here comes God with the robe of his righteousness. Puts it around us and makes us clean. He gives us his righteousness. In fact, not only can we not save ourselves, Scripture condemns the attempt to do it. Paul said in Romans 10, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. He's talking about his fellow Jews. My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They have a zeal for God, but it's misplaced. It's misput. It's focused in the wrong place. How? He says, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own. Do you get that? They're ignorant of God's righteousness and they're seeking to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That's Romans 10 verses 1 to 4. When we misunderstand, miscomprehend the gospel, we think it's about being righteous under Jesus and it's about receiving righteousness under Jesus, through Jesus. That God gives us his righteousness. And here's the amazing truth. In Christ, God offers us his own righteousness. And what he seeks from us is our faith in what Jesus has done. We put our trust in that power and not in our own. And he gives us that blessing. Here's a scripture that makes it about as plain as it can be put. Philippians 3, verses 7 to 9. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Watch this. Not having a righteousness of my own. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. It has to be that way that we are saved by the righteousness that God gives us when we have faith in Jesus. 
because we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And yet Paul says we are justified how, that leads us to the next phrase, by his grace as a gift. Did you see that awful footage this past week about the, the drunken driver in New York City careened around the corner, hit a parked car, veered off of that, and hit a, hit a mother carrying her baby and pushed them right into a barber shop. The police got there, and they found that the baby was under the car. And so two police officers, with the help of some bystanders, lifted that car. And I'm not talking about a little bitty car. They lifted that car, and that baby was pulled to safety and survived. They were able to lift it by the sheer determination of their wills. They, could, they, they lifted that car off of that baby. But you know, there's some things we can't lift. I suspect those rescuers in Surfside, Florida, coming to that collapsed condominium building, if they could have, would have lifted all that debris off those people. But they couldn't. No matter how many of them they were, no matter how hard they tried, no matter how badly they wanted to, they couldn't lift that debris off those people. You see, we've got a weight of sin on top of us. We've got something that we cannot possibly lift. And so when God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, he gave us an incredible gift out of his great love for us. That's the only way, that's the only way salvation could ever happen was by God's grace as a gift. Denise Banderman tells about taking a youth ministry class at Hannibal LaGrange College in 2002. Came time for the final exam, and of course she, like all the other students, had really studied hard and boned up from this exam. And when they came in, the professor had laid all the exams on their desk face down. And he said, all right, now <clears throat> turn your exam over. And when they turned the exams over, they found that every answer had been filled in for them in red ink. And down at the bottom of each exam was this note. It said, this is the end of the exam. All the answers on your test are correct. You will receive an A for the final exam. The reason you passed the test is because the creator of the test took the exam for you. All the work you did in preparation for this test did not help you get the A. You have just experienced grace. All the work you did didn't help you get the A. You've experienced grace. Folks, when you and I stand before God and he says, well done, good and faithful servant, it's not because, it's not because of the work we've done. It's because of the gift that we have through Jesus. There's only two things you can do with a gift. You can either accept it or you can reject it. But you can't earn it because it's a gift. But Paul's not quite finished describing how salvation works. He says this happens through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It's been estimated that as many as one half of the people in the Roman Empire in Paul's day were slaves. They understood about slavery and the slave trade. And something that happened 
not rarely, but not every day either, was that someone would pay the price for a slave and then set them free. It might be your uncle or your cousin or your parent or your child, or but you were free and you were able to, to accumulate enough money and so you would buy that person and then you didn't treat them as your slave. You set them free. That's what the word redemption means. It's from the slave trade. And so Paul's readers would have understood that well when they read this uh, in the church in Rome. And Paul says that's what Jesus did for us on the cross. He paid a price we couldn't pay. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, Peter wrote, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He redeemed us so we could be free. But there's still more. Paul says God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood. And we read that and think, that's beautiful. What on earth is a propitiation? What does that mean? I haven't used that word this week, have you? A propitiation by his blood. The NIV helps us here. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. Through the shedding of his blood. That's what a propitiation is. It's a sacrifice designed to bring us into relationship with God. It's a sin offering. It's like that sacrificial lamb offered in the temple at Passover. So now Paul has switched from legal language, from the slave trade language, to the language of the temple. The language of sacrifice. And he says Jesus has become that perfect sacrifice. All those other sacrifices rolled into one. And he paid with his blood. Once in a while you'll hear somebody object to the idea of a God whose justice must be satisfied by sacrifice, especially his own son. And I get that. I understand that, why it bothers people. But listen, here's what they're failing to get. They're failing to grasp, first of all, the depth of their own sin in contrast to the holiness of God. If we knew how sinful we really are, if we knew how our uncleanness looks in contrast to the absolute holiness of God, we just be thankful that Jesus became our sin offering. But the other thing that they're forgetting is that when God offered Jesus on that cross, he was offering himself. He was offering himself. You know, the Bible teaches us that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are so closely intertwined that they are one and act as one. And it's not as though God was looking out over a crowd and said, hey, you, Jesus, you're the sacrifice. When he sent his son, he was giving himself. And that's why all of our attempts to draw analogies to the cross ultimately fail. There's just not anything else to compare to it. There's not anything like it. In verses 25 and 26, Paul expresses the result of what Christ has done on the cross. God proves that he is righteous, but he also becomes the justifier, the one who puts us right with himself. He remains righteous because sin has been punished, and he becomes the justifier, the one who makes righteous all of us who could not make ourselves righteous. Righteous. 
when we have faith in Jesus. Who is that person who has faith in Jesus? That's the person who knows that he or she is a sinner with no other hope. It's the person who believes that Jesus' death is the perfect sacrifice and the only way to find forgiveness. It's the person who has given up all notions of becoming good enough to be saved and realizes how futile that is. And it's the person who commits his life or her life to following Jesus by being buried with him in the act of baptism and living forever, not only in this life, but on throughout eternity in his presence. It's a gift, and you can't earn it, but you can receive it. If you're ready to receive it, come and tell us. Let's stand together. Please turn to number 920.